Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Howard Burton about his book, First Principles, Building Perimeter Institute. Howard Burton was a freshly minted physics PhD from the University of Waterloo when a random job query resulted in a strange, albeit fateful, meeting with Research in Motion founder and co-CEO Mike Lazaridis. Mike had a crazy idea. He wanted to spend $100 million on his own recently found wealth. Of his own recently found wealth, Research in Motion had just gone public a year earlier, and he suddenly found himself fabulously wealthy on paper to do something new and transformative in the world of science. From these curious beginnings began the story of Canada's Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics and Howard's role as its founding director from 1999 to 2007. Howard Burton is also the founder and host of All Ideas Roadshow Conversations, Ideas Roadshow is an award-winning initiative producing a wide range of innovative, multimedia resources, including several pedagogical databases and a wide range of books in both electronic and print format, developed from in-depth conversations with more than 100 world-leading researchers, including three Nobel laureates. Ideas Roadshow conversations reveal the inspirations and personal journeys behind the research while providing behind-the-scenes insights into the world of frontline researchers. You can check it out on the ideasroadshow.com. Howard also spoke to me about the books, Conversations about Astrophysics and Cosmology, Biology and Neuroscience on the NBN podcast. So uh, make sure to look uh, those episodes uh, on look up uh, those episodes on our website or any podcast app you use. Well, Howard Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, gl- it's great to have you. So as we have witnessed uh, the pre- unprecedented times of the global pandemic, hopefully toward the end now, <laughs> I would like uh, to start by asking, how has it influenced you and your work? Uh, well, it's, of course, nobody has remained without influence. Um, some, some good, some bad. I think we were very fortunate. Uh, both because we didn't uh, suffer any personal health effects or have anybody very close to us who did. Um, and also because the, the time of um, uh, enforced, I guess, quietude being um, necessitating a reflection, taking stock of things was something that came actually at a very good time for us. So it gave us an opportunity to give us a clear sense of restructuring um, our business. We moved to creating a tremendous number of books from our resources to get a sense of what are the actual advantages of 
the way we've been doing things in terms of uh, what could be done better in print, what could be done in, with video, what could be done with audio. And it really forced us to think long and hard about how best to move forwards in a way that we might, quite frankly, not have done otherwise. So uh, we uh, we have certainly benefited from the uh, the enforced timeout. Um, and uh, but of course, we're ready to uh, we're ready to go back to normal now. Excellent. So you yourself, have you developed any new habits or skills? Uh, I developed any new habits or skills. Um, I don't think so. Um, I, I'm, 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 I, I have certainly different interests, but I'm not so sure that that's very different than the normal course. That's not a really very good answer for you. Um, no, I guess would be the short answer. I haven't developed any new habits or, well, skills, I suppose. Yeah, I have um, now that I reflect upon it. So work-related skills. So as I was saying, when uh, necessitating rethinking how to do things forced me to learn things like uh, InDesign, uh, because that's, of course, necessary for desktop publishing. So that was something that uh, had to be perfected and, and learned and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, so I guess that's, that's something. I, I should be thinking more in a CV-related way, but I was thinking more in terms of things that are intrinsically interesting. Uh, so, uh, so there you go. There's a rambling answer for you. That's quite modest. In design, is quite a skill. <laughs> well, I'm 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 used to. Uh, I seem like a spokesperson for Adobe, but uh, because I've spent a lot of time over the years becoming familiar with first uh, video editing, and 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 then of course you have accompanying audio things, uh, um, and uh, so that that requires knowledge of. Uh, Adobe Audition uh, on the audio side and 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 more um, perhaps more comprehensively Premiere Pro and Photoshop and all that. When you're making videos, of course, you need to be aware of uh, pixel-based imaging. You need to be aware of obviously video editing and so forth. So that's been an ongoing uh, project for me for years as as we develop our um, content and so. Uh, I guess looking at the print component in design was just a sort of a natural extension of all of that. Yeah, fair enough. So we can mention that there are many other open source uh, uh, softwares as well. So it's right. not just Adobe. So there you go. So so again, I'm not. Uh, I sound like an advertisement for uh, for Adobe, but of course there are lots of these things. Like you say, there are lots of open source ones. And and I guess a parenthetical comment is that it's it's just amazing what's out there. And you don't you, you certainly don't have to be wealthy and a lot of these things are free um but the technology to create is just off scale now and uh and wonderfully liberating yeah for sure so can you tell us a little bit more about yourself well um so i um my uh, i guess we'll talk a little bit about this through the book because the book is a, is a memoir um of my experiences shortly after i got my phd uh, in physics so uh, i guess we'll talk more about that later but just to back up uh so i'm canadian i was uh, born and raised in toronto and uh i have an academic background uh, consisting of a, a master's degree in philosophy and a phd in physics and um, and now, um, so on the other side, I guess bookending things. 
since 2007, I've been living in France, and we started um, Ideas Roadshow, which is uh, a digital media venture that produces videos and books of all sorts of conversations with uh, with all sorts of different experts in different fields. And I've been doing that for gosh eight eight or nine years now. And recently, we're just uh, We've just begun a new project as well called Ideas on Film, where spurred on by the Ideas Roadshow experience, uh, I'm determined to make all sorts of uh, additional full-length films. So how did you get interested in studying physics? So that's a good question. Um, (laughs) I I guess it went back to high school. So I was not perhaps the most... um, diligent student, which is a polite way of saying that I was a slacker for a long time when I was uh, when I was a kid. And my recollection is that physics was an area that appealed to me uh, because I couldn't get away with things. I, there was a, a, a rather formative experience when I was in high school where I tried to fake my way through an assignment, which was sort of par for the course. And my physics teacher I remember very distinctly caught me out because he had laid a trap for us uh, on on, uh, on that particular assignment, and you know it, it, there's a tendency to to um, to get impressed by people who can actually see beyond the little ruses that you're playing. So I thought, oh, this guy's interesting. Uh, maybe I should pay more attention to that. And from those rather uh, curious beginnings, I think I developed. Um, uh, uh, gradually an understanding of the power of thinking about things from, uh, dare I say, first principles. The, 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 and you even get this in high school physics, right, with Newtonian mechanics and so forth. You start recognizing that rather than having to memorize a whole bunch of different things, you appreciate that, um, that if you just understand a few basic principles, you can derive everything. And this, this I think, aesthetically resonated with me and it also um, it, it appealed to my inherent sense of laziness because that way I didn't have to memorize a whole bunch of things like you guys have to in biology. I could just remember the principles and derive whatever I needed to derive on the test. And um, and so that really um, I think that sparked my interest in orientation. Interesting. I never thought about it uh, in this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's what's also interesting is that. Uh, I thought that this was a really unique perspective. Uh, the idea of uh, being a bit of a lazy uh, person, not wanting to memorize a whole bunch of things, uh, that, that aspect that I just referred to recently. But subsequently, in these conversations that I've held with other uh, very, very eminent physicists, I've noticed um, very similar stories, uh, curiously. I remember Scott Tremaine in particular was saying something almost verbatim to what I told you Um uh, that he was attracted to physics because uh, at the time he, he thought it was a, a lot easier to get through school than memorizing the names of Soviet republics or whatever it was that he was being forced to do. So um, it turns out that this is actually reasonably common amongst, uh, amongst physicists. But it, it's certainly true that on an intellectual level, the idea of having a framework that um, where you need to appreciate a few basic assumptions and principles, and from there you can derive an entire framework. That that is something which I think 
very widely resonates with a tremendous number of uh, of people who go into physics. So what made you switch from academic research? Why didn't you continue? Oh, well, uh, so my story was, as I say, it, it was a very slow awakening. Uh, and uh, it, it took me a while before I fully realized the, the, the point of things. I wasn't a great student. Um, it was only really in my latter years of undergraduate that I started to really pay attention and, and recognize things. I also had, a, I was very stubborn and quite immature. And, and I think when subject, when something interested me, I, I devoted a lot of time and attention to it. And when something didn't interest me, I didn't. And, um, and I think that's not helpful because when one is young, one doesn't have a clear sense of the utility, both in terms of uh, pragmatic utility and just in terms of ways of thinking of learning all sorts of things which might not be intuitively interesting or at least immediately interesting. So um, so this made life difficult. So I didn't really start to knuckle down until uh, my later years of undergraduate, third and fourth years. And then I, I went off and I did this uh, business with philosophy and then I went back to physics. So I had a fairly long uh, pilgrimage as it were. Um, and then uh, I was in England and I met my wife, who's Dutch, and then I spent a few years in Holland. So by the time I eventually returned to doing a PhD, I, I was quite old. I mean, I was in my late 20s. And I realized at the time that, um, that the world of academia was such, especially in theoretical physics, especially in the sorts of things that uh, I was interested in at the time, um, it, it, it wasn't, it was going to be extremely unlikely to have uh, an academic career because the people who had academic careers, the people who got their PhD from Princeton at the age of seven or, you know, whatever it was. And, uh, and, and they were already very much in the system and there were very few opportunities. So, uh, so I knew that that was quite unlikely. And that was in fact, very liberating in a way because I thought, okay, well, the reason I want to do this is because there are some things that I'm really fascinated by that I want to learn. Uh, but of course, I'll have to go back and get a get a real job and uh, and be a, uh, try to earn my living doing something else because it's it's extremely unlikely for me to be able to uh, to become a uh, a professional academic. So this meant that rather than trying to chase after what was fashionable or do something that I thought would be tactical or pragmatic, um, during my PhD, I could just do whatever I thought was particularly interesting. And I was fortunate to have a supervisor who supported me in that. But I knew going into my PhD that, uh, that, or at least so I thought, that there was no real academic future. So I thought I'd have to work in Wall Street or do something like that once I get my PhD. So that was quite liberating. But I, I, I knew enough about the scene that... Um, that's the way it worked. So I wasn't under any illusions when I started my uh, my doctorate that uh, that I would have an academic career. So of course, uh, all of this didn't stop you from being heavily involved in a physics physics field. So can you tell us how did you come uh, to writing the book First Principles and what is, what's it about? Well. Yeah, so this kind of sets up the whole story about what happened. So, I, I mean, I didn't expect to be in the position that I was in, as I as I just mentioned to you, uh, which I think was very liberating and empowering at some way, because 
I've seen a lot subsequently of people who approach things from a tactical perspective, and they say, either knowingly or unknowingly, they're either forced into doing it because they're considered the, the brightest young thing in the block, and they go to some fancy school, uh, and they're told, well, as a, as a member of the elite or the burgeoning elite, you should be focused on this area. And they, they move forwards quite unthinkingly. My career path was quite different. Um, so I, I, I was influenced in what I was interested in by this master's degree that I had in London, by, uh, in fact, by, one, by many people, but one in particular, uh, who's a theoretical physicist at uh, an imperial college, subsequently retired, called Chris Isham really opened up my eyes to all sorts of fascinating ways of looking at mathematics and physics and their overlap that I had uh, not at all appreciated. So when I did my PhD, I wanted to do something along those lines. And in the years leading up to it, I developed a clearer understanding of what sorts of uh, avenues, at least to some extent, I wanted to pursue. And then having done the PhD, I thought, as I was saying to you before, okay, now it's time to go out and uh, pay the piper, as it were. I've had my four years of hiatus from the world, and I have to go and get a job, as I as expected. So I hustled around, and this is now in the late 1990s, right, right around the turn of the century. Um, and, and I was able to procure a position on uh, Wall Street, which is a fairly entry-level position at the time. This was just starting to be the time when it was most helpful to have a master's degree in um, in mathematical finance or, or something like that. I mean, in the early 90s, they were hiring anybody who had a PhD in physics or mathematics or so it seemed. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I think things became rather more official. But this was sort of in that in-between period. So anyway, um, not because I was interested in working in finance. I had absolutely zero interest in working in finance, but I thought, okay, being in New York would be interesting. And there weren't very many career options for somebody in my situation, uh, as I was saying, that I knew going in. So I thought, okay, if you get a PhD in, in physics, what can you do? Well, technically you can be a professor, but there was very you know, that was a very unlikely career path for somebody in my situation at my age. Um, you could teach high school, but that seemed not very interesting. Um, and uh, you could maybe try to do science journalism. That also seemed not easy. And for the most part, uh, chasing after all sorts of things that weren't really all that interesting and certainly didn't pay very well. So the obvious thing to do was to be thinking about doing something in the financial world because the money was very strong and there might be opportunities to uh there was a sense that the, the skill set that I had developed would be recognized. So that's what I that's what I first turned my attention to. And then I had cold feet. So after this, right before this thing in New York, I thought, well, okay, fine. Maybe this is in the 1990s, uh, again, very late 1990s. So 1999, 1998, I think at the time. And uh, there was a tech boom going on. There was a bubble that subsequently burst. But anyway, there was a tech boom going on. And people, you know, companies were going public all over the place and people were making money doing all sorts of things. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, supposedly a clever guy. I have these other skills. Maybe I can work at some companies. So I, uh, I did a bit of research. I remember very distinctly, I went to the business library at the University of Toronto 
Um, and I researched a bunch of companies and tried to find this was the internet was not quite a quite a, what it is now and uh, and tried to get the contact information for um, uh, CEOs because I, I knew that if I wrote to the human resources they'd say you're not a software engineer you're not of this or you're not of that so I thought I'd write to the CEOs directly and try to appeal to their sense of uh, human capital and uh, try to interest them and say, here's who I am, here's what I've done, here's how I think I can help your company, and please help, excuse me, save me from a a lucrative career on Wall Street. And uh, so I I sent out letters, because again, I knew that, or at least I had a sense that email would just be blocked and it wouldn't be able to get through. So I thought that I can send out a, a, a paper letter to these people, and I researched a bunch of people, and I sent out something like 40 or 50 letters, and most of them were in the States, uh, but one of them was in Canada and somewhat ironically based in Waterloo that I had never heard of called Research in Motion. And they made something called Blackberries uh, that I had also never heard of at the time. And uh, so I sent the letter to, uh, they had two CEOs, which was quite unusual. So I sent letters to both. And uh, and that's how the story really began. I like this line. Save me from Korea on the Wall Street. That's quite a, quite a nice uh, job appeal. Well, it it it, it worked for uh, for a very small number of people. I mean, I did I got a couple of responses, but most of them were not very interesting. And but one of the responses was, uh, and that was from uh, Mike Lazaridis, who was one of the co CEOs of this company, Research in Motion, that made Blackberries, and uh, he contacted me and said, "Well, that's all very." That sounds interesting. I got your letter and your CV, and I'd like to talk. And uh, and that's that's really how things began. So, what was uh, uh, Mike's role in uh, in the beginning in all of it? Well, uh, I, I guess it just the best way to say that is just right from right from there. So so he said I'd like to talk, and I didn't know what he wanted to talk about. Uh, so we we had a meeting. And he was, I remember he was giving a talk at um, uh, a company which uh, subsequently was a major player in the, in the tech field in Canada called Nortel, which is no longer. Uh, and he was giving a talk there and we had arranged to meet. And I, so this was the first time, I think we had had, had a brief phone call before uh, just to arrange that. And so we had a meeting and uh, we went out for lunch at this, I remember it was this Italian restaurant in a strip mall in the middle of nowhere, sort of the western side of, I think near Brampton or something like that in Toronto. And, uh, and he was, a, he was very, very interesting. Uh, he spoke for a very long time and I had no real clear sense of what he wanted or what he was doing. And he, he's a very charismatic fellow um, and bubbling with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and interest. Um, but it, it was clear to me as the conversation talked all over the place from sort of science fiction stuff to, uh, to engineering stuff to, uh, to all sorts of other topics. Uh, we were, well, I was going to say we were feeling each other out. I think I was being felt out much, <laughs> much more than the other way around. Um, and then at the at the end of this very long and passionate and, and rather bizarre lunch, uh, he said to me, "So, are you interested?" And I and I thought, "Interested in what?" 
I, I, don't, I, <laughs> I don't have any idea what we're talking about here. Um, and th- this is, I think, interesting at some level because um, whenever something happens, and I've seen this many times before, uh, people tend to build a, a very direct story. Well, this building was put up for this reason and that reason, and this institution, this organization, uh, this society, whatever it is, uh, they look at it from the perspective of the thing actually already having been created. Uh, what they don't, of course, realize is that things, when you're actually creating something, things are vastly more open-ended than that. You don't really know where you're going. You don't have a sense of what necessarily you want to accomplish and I'm talking about the principal protagonists, the people who are actually involved. Um, from Mike's perspective, what he was really interested in doing, I subsequently came to realize, was this. Uh, basically, his company, Research in Motion, as it was then called, subsequently turned into BlackBerry, um, his company had gone public. He did not come from a, a terribly wealthy or extremely established background. He was an engineer, is an engineer, and an extremely good one. And he was really the technical guy behind BlackBerry. And it was his company he founded with uh, two other people. Um, and, and then later on, he brought in the co-CEO came more from the, well, definitely from the business side. Um, and... And he found himself in a position as his company had gone public in in um, just a few years earlier or a year and a half earlier or something like that. All of a sudden, this guy who was a hardworking, very technically oriented, uh, science-loving fellow found himself phenomenally wealthy on paper because he was the, the co-CEO of this company that, uh, that you know, whose stock had gone public. Um, and he wanted to do something with his money. He didn't know exactly what to do. Uh, he didn't. He, he didn't have any clear sense of that. But he was interested and intrigued, and I think mulling these ideas very much over in his mind. And that's very much like Mike. I mean, there are people who become very wealthy, and they just want to acquire more wealth, uh, or they, you know, they they want to be in some kind of a game where they say they have more wealth than the next person, and there's there's all this sort of thing. That that very much wasn't his style. His attitude was, look, I have all this money. Um, I want to do something interesting with it. And and shortly after he was in this situation, uh, here comes a letter from somebody he doesn't know who has an interesting background, and he wants to think about doing something interesting with it. And that's really, at that level, that's that's what we're talking about. And that's really all it was. And I guess the other thing that you need to appreciate is that somebody who finds himself very, very wealthy and influential, uh, particularly perhaps in a place like Canada, where there, where there aren't as many success stories, certainly in the innovation sector, and, and you can stand out more, perhaps being the big fish in the little pond. Um, but somebody who's in that situation, all of a sudden, uh, everybody comes out of the woodwork, right? Everybody wants a favor from you. Everybody wants something from you. Everyone's trying to get to you. Everyone's harassing you. Everyone's trying to sell something to you. Um, and so that's difficult for for anyone to really be able to deal with. And anyone you've ever gone to school with or you've had any relations with that in the past comes out of the woodwork. And so you spend a lot of time playing defense against this this onslaught, as it were. And so to to encounter someone who you don't know, 
who uh, comes from completely left field, uh, who's not recommended, who doesn't feel you owe him anything, who's just investigating something, that's actually very refreshing for you. Uh, And so that enabled us to start off our relationship in, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a position of equivalence, because it clearly wasn't, because he had all this money and I was looking for a job. So that obviously uh, uh, affected the, the the, the tenor of the, uh, of the relationship. But at the same time, it was very much uh, on, a, on an emotional and on a personal level, uh, really very much like a friendship. And that's, in fact, very quickly what it became. So, um, yes, yeah, so I've rambled a little bit, but, uh, but that's, that's how things started. And I don't think, you know, either, neither one of us had any clear sense of things. And at, at the very beginning, in fact, I really wasn't sure what to make of it. And, and, didn't really take it seriously until shortly thereafter he sent me uh, uh, a check uh, uh, and uh, in the amount that we had very quickly and and uh, unthinkingly agreed to um, and so I thought okay well I guess I better start uh, thinking and, and try to move the boat forwards and take this a little bit more seriously so how and when did you know that you were up for this job? Or have you not yet grasped the whole enormity of the project yet? Well, it wasn't a job. That's the point, really. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. It, uh, and, and that's something which I find funny because people really have a hard time getting this out of their head. They see an institute now and they say, oh, there's an institute. And therefore, there must have been a plan for the Institute, and there must have been a program for the Institute, and there must have been, it must have been thought, and then somebody advertised this job as director of the Institute and so forth. That, that wasn't the situation. The situation was you had somebody who wanted to do something uh, important and transformative with the, his newfound wealth. And he found himself in a situation to explore the possibilities of doing that, he, he also had a company to run, and the company, uh, you know, had a had a very interesting trajectory for many years, where it became the dominant company. So he was a busy fellow. Um, I mean, dominant company in the sort of emerging, but later became smartphone world globally. So he had a lot of things to do on his plate, and yet at the same time, it was a credit to him that he wanted to do something. Uh, really interesting, again, with his money. One of the other things that I think should be mentioned is you're in a weird situation when when you're the CEO or the co-CEO where you have a lot of shares in a company which has just gone public and you find yourself very wealthy because on the one hand, you think, great, I've got all this, you know, all this money on paper. I'm a a zillionaire. Um, But if you're the CEO, there's a real constraint with what you, how you can cash that in, right? Because if you just sell all your stock or sell a huge chunk of your stock, then everybody says all this stuff is necessarily public. And then people say, well, obviously the CEO doesn't have confidence in his company. He's selling all the stock for it. So we're going to divest from this company. And so you have to be very, very careful. On the one hand, you have all this money and potential. But on the other hand, you're very significantly constrained with what it is that you can do with that. So we... So his idea was, look, this, this, I'm thinking about doing this sort of thing. Isn't it opportune? This guy comes to me um, and he wants to do something, uh, or at least he, you know, he's looking for a job. Uh, so 
Uh, in fact, he said to me explicitly, well, you can always work at RIM. We're looking for smart people. We're expanding and so forth. But I have uh, another project that that I think would be cool to investigate. And would you be interested in doing that? So um, so that that was really the tenor of the conversation. And it wasn't as if we had any clear sense of what the end product would be. And I also didn't have a sense that I was applying for the job as the director of an institute, first and foremost, because there wasn't an institute. And secondly, because we were just getting to know each other. So, of course, what, you know, years later, I had lots of experiences of hiring people myself and working with people. And there's a there's a large process of trust and understanding if people are duly motivated and will accomplish things and uh, you know, how, how things will necessarily unfold. In the beginning, he didn't know me from Adam, which was a good thing on, on one side. But on the other, of course, he didn't have any idea what I might be able to accomplish. But he also knew that if he didn't at least make it some sort of a position where he would pay me some, uh, some money, uh, then I wouldn't take it seriously because I was looking for a job. So uh, and this is somebody who's you know, managed a whole lot of people in his life. So he understood that. So the idea was, look, I'll, uh, you know, here's a consultancy fee or whatever, whatever it was that was started out. And your job is to investigate things. So I investigated things. So at the time I was living in uh, the, I guess the, what they call the beaches or the beach, depending on your, I don't know what it's like now, but anyway, the Eastern part of Toronto uh, that's right on the lake. And I used to go for these long walks along the boardwalk. And I said to myself, okay, well, the guy's just giving me a check. So he's obviously uh, taking this seriously. So I, I guess my, my job is supposed to be to think about things. So I'll think about things. And, uh, and as somebody who had spent, not just had, had, had done a PhD in theoretical physics, but I think one of my strengths is recognizing the sociology of the field and what could be improved and what uh, might in a perfect world be better. And we've all done that. I'm sure you've done that with your friends, right? You sit around saying, gosh, isn't it weird the way things are structured at universities? Isn't it weird the way this happens and you're forced to do this and you're forced to do that? And what would be in the best interest of the field and in molecular biology or genetics or what have you, if you were queen of the world and you could make whatever decisions that you'd like to do, um, and we've all had these conversations and talked about them. And perhaps I was a little bit more astute than most because I was a little bit older and I had had the chance to reflect on that more in different areas. Um, but, uh, but now all of a sudden I was in this very weird situation where it looked like somebody was paying me to take these things seriously. So I thought, okay, well, let's just pretend. Let's pretend that this is very serious and then you, you have no constraints and you can design an institute and a structure. It wasn't even so much an institute, but uh, you can design some kind of mechanism to be able to uh, make a difference, quite frankly. And, and that's really how it started. And I was quite young. Um, I didn't think so at the time, but now I certainly think I was young. And, and there was a, I had a tremendous amount of energy and I thought, all right, well, let's try to grab this with both hands and think about it and try to imagine what could be done. So my first thinking was, well, 
you should probably have an institute because everybody has all sorts of different institutes. Uh, and uh, at least that gives it some kind of a form. Uh, the second thought is, well, once you have an institute, you might want to have a name. So I remember walking up and down the boardwalk. I thought, well, what should I call this thing? Just, just as an idea. Uh, and eventually I came up with this whole idea of pushing the boundaries. And that led me to think of a perimeter. And then I thought perimeter is a good name also because it has rim in it, right? It can also be easily abbreviated to the Greek acronym PI, which harkens back to the great, uh, uh, or, or, or pi, of course, just a letter, uh, which harkens back to the uh, to the great tradition of Greek um, development in the natural sciences and philosophy. And of course, Mike himself was of Greek descent, and so this all seemed like it was a good name. And so I, as I tended to do, I sent him an email and said, "What about this?" And he said, "Great." You know, he, he would always respond like within within seconds, uh, basically. This, of course, he had this at the time pager. Uh, with with emails and um, and then I you know it just went on from there and so you start really taking it seriously you think okay well what kind of an institute is it so you do some research so you look at all sorts of institutes around the world what type of institutes are there um, there are it turns out there are a lot of different scientific institutes and they're all uh, organized slightly differently and they have different emphasis and then how do you know what is a success and what's not a success and and of course, I had my own, there were lots of things that had bothered me, as I was saying, with the way that many aspects of theoretical physics were. So I naturally was oriented towards theoretical physics, because that's where I had done my, uh, that's where my interests were, and that's where I had some level of expertise. And I had noticed all sorts of things that were, quite frankly, dysfunctional about the theoretical physics world, or so it seemed to me. And I thought, well, now that I have this opportunity Let's see if we can do things differently that can at least to try to address them. I don't think I actually really believed any of this was going to happen at, at the very early stages. But of course, if you're taking it seriously, you take it seriously. And you, you try to imagine, at least as an experiment, as an intellectual exercise, what could be done and what should be done. And, and so I was taking the ball and I was running with it and I was really doing my best to to think about these things. And from his perspective, again, having subsequently hired lots of people, when you see someone who is really engaged and working hard and has some ability and is developing all sorts of ideas and is coming back to you constantly, writing reports and saying this, how about this? How about that? How about up? How about down? What if we do this? What if we do that? And they have that passion and that desire and that enthusiasm. Well, the one thing you do is you just let them go, right? And and you, um, as I said, he certainly had lots to do, but he was, I'm sure, gratified that I was so enthusiastic and so willing to take things seriously and so comprehensive. And he was always he always made himself very available. So we started not only emailing regularly, um, but we'd be meeting. I'd come give him updates, and and we very quickly developed. I think, quite a close friendship and a working relationship. So, as you mentioned, of course, this was not uh, like a, like any other job. It was more like a proverbial job that uh, you have to do <laughs> something uh, from, uh, from ground up. So uh, I suppose not many of us actually can envision what does a director, like a founding director of an institute does. So can you describe maybe a few activities that you would engage in and how would your day look like? Sure. 
sure. Let me let me do that. But but before maybe it's useful to try to back up a little bit and and try to give a sense of uh, as things were taking shape, what we were doing differently. Uh, because again, when you when you say what a founding director of an institute does, we all have different ideas of what an institute is, right? If you say the word institute, it conjures up various ideas. If you say director of an institute, it, it also conjures up different ideas that depend on where you are. If you're in Germany, you'll have a different opinion of what a director of an institute is. You'll have a different image uh, than uh, if you're in whatever, Australia or Switzerland or somewhere else. Um, so, I, and I think what my day job was like is in turn related to what sort of thing we built, or at least what the orientation was and how that thing was envisioned to be different. So the first thing that I'll say is that I didn't want to construct something which was the copy or the mirror of anything which already existed. And and that sounds kind of obvious. Why would you want to do something like that? But in my experience, it's less obvious than you might think, uh, because there are a lot of people that that uh, that say, oh, you want to have the Canadian version of the Institute for Advanced Study, or you want to have the uh, you want something like, you know, the local version of the, what was then the Institute for Theoretical Physics, uh, subsequently the KITP in Santa Barbara, or you want to have something like, you know, a larger version of the theory group at CERN or what have you. So, um, and that wasn't the attitude at all. That wasn't my attitude. And it certainly, uh, wasn't Mike's attitude. And I guess the other thing that, that should be mentioned is, um, Mike wasn't just a successful very successful entrepreneur. He was also someone who came from a culture where youth was um, given perhaps more respect than it is in academia, right? So the standard academic trajectory is, well, you slog your way through uh, and you develop a reputation slowly, slowly, slowly. And and then if you're very fortunate, you get uh, after a bunch of recent theoretical physics, after a bunch of postdocs, then you'll get an assistant professorship somewhere. And then eventually you'll get tenure, hopefully. And then you'll start being someone who can actually become involved in uh, in, in something. And then if you become really famous, uh, then when you're, when you're uh, quite elderly and usually uh, incapable of doing anything else, I'm being a bit cavalier, but you get the point. Then, then maybe we'll put you in charge of some, you know, fancy institute somewhere. So that by at that point, you're you're already in your dotage and and you're considered a great role model. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about the daily functioning of the institute? Um, sure. So as as I was saying before, um, there were all sorts of ways that we wanted to um, uh, distinguish ourselves from other institutions. And uh, that, that over time, obviously, we had to flesh these things out and have different aspects of what is it that makes uh, Perimeter Institute different? What did we want to accomplish? Uh, what unique contribution did we want to make? And as I was describing to you, uh, there were quite a few different things that we we were focused on, and that in turn naturally has an impact on what my uh, 
daily operations would be like, as well as, of course, my overall orientation, because um, because since my overall orientation uh, as the director of this thing was to try to 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 do my best to ensure that it could achieve these goals that we set for ourselves, my daily um, uh, my daily tasks were. Um, uh, we're obviously in accordance with that, right? So I think that, that in, a, in a way, the way to look at it is to say, okay, well, what did you want to accomplish? Which in turn is linked to, well, what did what did you hope that the Institute would accomplish? And then that comes down to, well, how did you envision that this actually happened uh, or would happen? And that in turn filters down to, well, what are you actually doing all day long to ensure that you're moving the boat forward as it were in the right, possible way. Um, so there were many strands to that. So one strand is, uh, is actually uh, government involvement. And this comes as a surprise to a lot of people because they say, well, look, you got this, uh, uh, you had this private investment, which turned out to be, uh, when we started off, uh, a commitment of $120 million. This is Canadian dollars, but that's still a lot of money. Um, of private monies. So this was not from you know, a company. This was not from what was done research in motion at the time. These were private monies from Mike and, and two of his business partners, but primarily Mike, to, uh, to, for the development of this institution. So if you have $120 million, why do you need uh, public monies? Uh, and there were two. So this was a good question. And in fact, it took us a little bit of time to come to the conclusion not that long, but a little bit of time that we actually did want to have public monies because getting government support for something is not easy. Um, it's not uh, uh, it, it's not something which I was certainly trained for, and in fact, nobody was really trained for who was involved with the institute. And at the same time, it's also something which is bound to uh, generate a lot of. Uh, additional jealousy and ill will. I mean, imagine that you start this new institution in Switzerland, uh, funded by a very wealthy uh, Swiss individuals, and then at the same time, you're asking for uh, operating funds or matching money or supporting money from the government. A lot of people would be very upset uh, in your orbit saying, well, this is extra money that they're giving to this new institute. And if they want to play you know, the role of the new Medici, so that's fine with them. But why Why are they taking additional money which could go to us? That's the other, that's the way everyone, and particularly academics, always look at new monies, right? They look at it as it's somehow theirs. It could go to us, and why are they giving it to these people? So we knew that that was going to be a problem. We knew it was going to be difficult to get, and um, we knew it was going to be a tremendous distraction. So the obvious question is, well, why do you do that? And and the reason why is because as a new institution that's devoted to public research, if we don't have strong government support, and government does, of course, support basic research in, in Canada and, and in and other, you know, other developed nations, uh, pretty well other nations all around the world, they support basic research to some extent. So if it wouldn't do that, then that would be sending a very strong message that it, it's not actually endorsing things because that's what government, that's how government supports, right? Um, so there was that aspect to it. And there was also the, the, the notion that if they don't support it, 
there would be a sense of, well, it just becomes this rich man's toy or this, uh, this institute which is built around the proclivities of, of some uh, individuals who want to do some uh, odd things with their money, and it doesn't have a, a stamp of approval and an endorsement which enables us to be able to recruit people. Uh, you're not in the fold, as it were. And, and, and then even more, or, or just as significantly, is the idea that, yeah, $120 million is a lot of money. Uh, it was more then than it is now, but it's a lot now too. Um, but you don't want to have this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for uh, enormous transform, potentially transformative change for physics or theoretical physics, and then spend all the money, kind of like a drunken sailor, right? You don't want to do that. You want to make sure that you're able to parlay this enormous, unprecedented donation uh, or investment into something that's sustainable and long-lasting. And in order to do that, you have to try to find a way that you don't spend all that money, right? I mean, that's why uh, institutions all around the world and, and universities all around the world have endowments. Uh, that gives them financial freedom and flexibility and opportunity to hire whomever they want. To, uh, to move off into all sorts of different research directions that they might not even be able to envision or conceive of right now. You want to you have that, that flexibility. You want to have that bulwark against uh, potential unforeseen or foreseen difficulties down the road. So we knew that that was something that we needed to do after, after a relatively short period of time. And, uh, and that took up a significant amount of my time, certainly not the, all of my time, but a significant amount of my time at the beginning. And again, this is something that, uh, that at some level people find difficult to imagine. They think, well, look, you've, you, you're, uh, you're acting on behalf of this captain of industry who's a poster boy for Canadian technology. He's making this huge donation. Of course, the government is just going to roll up their, uh, their sleeves and dip into their piggy bank and throw you a lot of money. But it didn't actually work that way. And you can understand why if you reflect upon it. The government is saying, well, look, it's wonderful that this, this person is doing this. But, uh, but, having, but since he's doing it, what do you need us for? And after all, we're constrained. We, we, you know, we have universities that are concerned about cutbacks. We have other, uh, we don't have unlimited resources by any stretch of the imagination. So it's wonderful that he's doing this, but surely, uh, uh, since you have all this money, you don't need our money. So that was that was the the uh, one response. Another response, of course, that that government would have is we don't have a program for it. So anybody who's ever tried to do anything on a fundraising level at any level of government bureaucracy knows that the, the principal role of bureaucrats when they're faced with anything is to say no. Uh, and there's a reason for that, right? Because again, resources are scarce. They don't want to change anything. Um, and they have to be protecting what's already been established. So the first thing that they'll tell you is we don't have a program. We don't have a program. We don't have a program. This is wonderful what you're doing, but it's new. It's unprecedented. Uh, we don't have anything we don't have any place to, to put that. Um, and the other thing that, that I think is related to this is that when you, at the time, and Canada was actually doing quite innovative things at the time, uh, significantly innovative things, uh, to the extent probably greater than, than, than they have in recent, uh, in my lifetime, in terms of funding research and development. So they had these uh, millennial scholarships, they had 
uh, Canada Research Chairs were uh, unveiled. They were giving much more support to the granting councils. At the time we started, they actually were significantly increasing research and, and uh, research funding for scholarship uh, across all levels in the country. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And here we come along and say, well, that's all very great what you've done, uh, but we want money for our thing. And the obvious question they're going to ask is, well, okay, but we've just been spending all this money <laughs> doing all these other things. How does that work? How does that fit in? Um, and so you have to make an argument there, and it's reasonable that you have to make an argument to, to really convince them that what you're doing is deserving. So that took a fair amount of time. Um, there, uh, the other thing that I mentioned uh, just a moment ago was that in addition to the research mandate that I talked a little bit about, which was obviously the core focus, we also developed a very vigorous outreach program. And by outreach, I don't just mean uh, public lectures uh, and, and uh, various programs for the general public, although we had that, and we embellished that with things like festivals and so forth. But we also had programs for high school students. We had programs for high school teachers. We had, uh, we had programs to try to engage people at all different strata from across society uh, into what it was that we were doing in a way that hopefully would, would be stimulating and enriching for them and at the same time uh, give them an opportunity to understand research culture and what it was like inside. Uh, the very sort of question you just asked me about, you know, what do these people do all day long? So that was something... Uh, that took up a fair amount of my time to be able to do. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, and perhaps first and foremost, was this sense of developing the right sort of culture to be able to achieve the scientific goals that you're setting for yourself. So first and foremost, that involves the people, because obviously the people you choose, the people you work with, uh, they're the ones who are going to be setting the, the, the tone. They're doing the research and they're also setting the research culture. So you have to be giving the lion's share of your time and attention to recruitment and management and making sure that the people who you've selected fit the mandate, fit the orientation, fit the uniqueness of what it is that you're trying to achieve and also support them to the highest possible level that you can. So my view, this is a very... Um, long-winded and roundabout way of trying to address your question. My view wasn't, you know, I'm the director of this thing and everybody has to do what I say, or, or you know, I have these great ideas to do X or to do Y and, and this should be supported, uh, which was clearly not my style, not least of which, because I, I knew very well that uh, that, that was uh, just ludicrous. I wasn't in a position to be doing that. I didn't think that was the way that things should be done anyway, but even if they were, it, it certainly wasn't, uh, certainly shouldn't be coming from me. I wasn't in a position to be able to do that. So my role, as I perceived it to be, was to build the place and to make sure that it was generally subscribing to the mandate and generally inculcating the culture in such a way that it might have the greatest likelihood of making a difference in the way that I was describing. Um, and that involved supporting the people who were getting the right people, and then doing what I could to support them. It wasn't enough just to recruit people and then say, well, good luck with that. Okay, so now build your research culture. You have to support them. You have to talk to them. You have to understand their needs. You have to do your best to make sure that um, they can build their groups and their areas. You have to really be an ally for them. So I saw my role 
not to be directing people, but to really be supporting people. Of course, you have to do your best to, um, you're still in a management position, right? And there are always going to be difficult positions, difficult decisions um, that have to be maintained. Not everybody's going to work out. You're going to have to make hard choices sometimes. You have to be uh, in a situation where you're not everybody's friend by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, structurally, my principal role was to facilitate the development of this institution. And the only way that that could happen would be to be supporting the research staff and, to, and helping them to develop the research culture that I had envisioned. So how challenging did you find uh, it uh, to recruit the right people who can continue this work after? Uh, it's very challenging. And uh, mm. it's, you know, full stop, it's very challenging. And, and, and when you're starting off, it, it's quite dispiriting because um, most of the people say no. And in fact, I remember very, very vividly uh, taking solace from uh, very uh, experienced and knowledgeable people around me. One of the great things that I think I should mention is that there was no shortage of very eminent people who were willing to participate in the development of the Institute uh, uh, at, at no little investment of time and effort across the uh, the world. People like, I mentioned Scott Tremaine earlier, people like uh, Scott, people like Roger Penrose, people like uh, Tony Leggett, uh, people like Paul Steinhardt. These people were um, very willing to freely give their time and energy to help us succeed. And so that's very gratifying. And one of those people, uh, Jim Hartle, uh, I remember who's not only an incredibly eminent uh, theoretical physicist, but had a tremendous amount of administrative experience. He was one of the directors of the then Institute for Theoretical Physics in its uh, earlier days. Uh, So he knew a great deal about not only physics and, 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 and broad aspects of theoretical physics, but also running institutions, which are two, I should say, extremely different things. Um, And he knew a lot about both of those things. And he said to me, look, Howard, if you're, recruitment success rate is too high, you're doing something wrong. You're not aiming high enough. And, I, and I will, I'll never forget that. And there's a lot of truth to that because the best places in the world um, are going to have difficulty in recruiting people and retaining people. It's very, very competitive. In addition to whatever scientific culture you establish, there's, there are all these other factors. I mean, people are uh, people may be married. They may like to go surfing. They may they 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 may just feel attached to one particular place or another particular place. And when you're trying to establish um, an institution that's in a part of the world where, which doesn't have a lot of uh, you know natural beauty, it doesn't have it doesn't have the world's best climate, it doesn't have the greatest uh, intellectual tradition in these particular areas. Um, it's not to say that there aren't some significant advantages, and there are, uh, but they have to be, I think, looked at very objectively so that you say, right, how can we harness those as best as we can? How can we maximize those as best as we can, notwithstanding the disadvantages? Every place has advantages and disadvantages. But so you do the best you can to be able to, uh, to, to put your best foot forward. Um, and part of putting your best foot forward is telling people 
um, giving them this level of support and commitment that if they come, they'll have the opportunity not just to be able to do their own research, but to be able to uh, hire other people, to be able to uh, really have impact in that field. Um, and then the other thing is sometimes you're just not going to win anyway. And sometimes you have to recognize, okay, what are the targets of opportunity? So uh, sometimes that target of opportunity is represented in terms of a field. So I mentioned earlier quantum information theory, being able to recognize when a new and exciting uh, and potentially very impactful field is emerging and how to harness that and how to capitalize on that, because it's a lot easier to, to start a group and recruit people in, in new fields. And then the other thing is, well, maybe you can't get the, the, the incredibly established individuals who are uh, at, the, at the upper end of their careers to be able to come. Maybe instead of that, you can hire four or five really promising, incredibly dynamic young people uh, to start a group in a bank and to be, uh, to be able, to, um, to, be able to, to create a tremendous amount of momentum. So there are all sorts of different ways of doing it, and you have to be sufficiently flexible. But one of the things I think you always have to bear in mind is that, uh, again, what, what Jim told me, which is that you're not going to succeed all the time. And maybe if you are succeeding all the time, you're not thinking big enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great line. <laughs> so you've successfully managed the Institute for eight years. And how did you decide to step down? Well, I, I guess the first thing to say is that I... Um, as I think I told you at the beginning, it, my circumstances were unique in all sorts of ways. They were not only unique in the obvious way, which is that I uh, was thrust into this opportunity by a set of uh, unprecedented circumstances that enabled me to do it. But it was also unique insofar as I had never actually coveted this. Most people who run things at some point actually like to run them. That's why they wind up doing what they're doing. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens most of the time. That people who are in a position of authority like to be in a position of authority. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's an obvious point that I think has to be made. Um, I was never of that particular disposition. Um, I was in a position of authority, never having coveted being in a position of authority. And I think in many ways, that was actually my strength. But it meant that I didn't want to do this for my whole life. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't chomping at the bit to be the director of anything or the head of anything or managing other people. And in fact, in many ways, I think I was an absolutely terrible manager because it took me a very long time to appreciate the fact that people actually do need to be managed. Um, so, because uh, I never wanted to be managed, so I could never imagine why anybody else wanted to be managed. And this led me to have a distinct lack of empathy, particularly on the administrative side, to, uh, to some management issues. So uh, the first thing is that uh, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to do this forever. And in fact, from the very beginning, even when I started with these very curious beginnings, I didn't, I didn't think, okay, I'm going to be the director of this institute, not only because there wasn't an institute of which to be a director, but for a long time, I thought, okay, well, I can set this thing up and then I'll find somebody who is better able, better equipped, better suited to be doing this. Um, and at the very beginning, I was completely convinced there were lots of people who were uh, uh, fit that description. And as time went on, it was uh, much to my surprise and uh, 
and to some extent uh, concern, uh, I recognized that there were far fewer people who were well qualified to be doing this than I had first thought. Most people were interested in setting up their own thing and having their own titles and being in charge of it for their own end, whatever that might be. And um, and so there's that. There's there's that point that it was not not something that I actively coveted by any stretch of the imagination. And then there's the fact that um, that I think it's important for the health of any institution to have some change. I think it's not healthy for any institution to have one person who is leading it for an extended period of time, um, because then you you know you you have a lack. Obviously, tautologically, you have a lack of dynamism, right? So it's it's a good thing. It's healthy for any institution to have change that happens. And I was always aware of that as well. So this was not something that I thought I'm going to do uh, for all sorts of reasons, personal and in terms of the best interest of the Institute uh, to be doing uh, indefinitely. Um, I, I wound up uh, deciding to leave perhaps a little bit earlier, uh, and I'm talking like a year or two earlier than I would have in the normal course, um, because things unfortunately deteriorated a little bit um, between myself and Mike. As I said before, we had had a very strong personal relationship. Um, and that, I think, was uh, si- significant and important and helped in many ways to be able to establish uh, what it is that we were doing. And I think we were a very um, formidable team in, in many ways. Um, there came a time when I'm not actually to this day, uh, completely sure of how this happened or why this happened. But there came a time when there was uh, a a bit of a breakdown in trust where he, I think, thought that I was going to um, do something against him and and whatever. And and once you reach um, a situation where the two key people who are involved don't have that same level of trust that they had before, then I think it's just very important to move on because then you, you know, it's it's no good. Not only is it no good for the for the institution, but it's no good personally. It's not fun, and if you're not actually enjoying what you're doing at something like this, um, then it it just becomes uh, terribly onerous because there is a lot of work, there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done, and the way it 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 can work is if you're so excited and passionate and committed about the importance of of being able to do it. And if you uh, reach a situation that you're uh, uh, that, that you no longer feel that way, um, and then it becomes just like work, and then you think, well, you know, this there's no there's no point in continuing in this particular direction. So, um, so that's that's a, a reason why I think I I decided to leave when I did. But um, but I think that's quite secondary. Uh, and if I have regrets or concerns on a structural level, it's more that um, some of the broader um, opportunities that Perimeter Institute represented uh, weren't actually, um, I think, capitalized on. At least they weren't when I was paying attention to them. So there are some broader aspects of the the the, the greater opportunity that's represented by somebody like Mike. And Mike is a unique person, but he's not, you know, globally unique in the sense that there's, I, I think it's it's unreasonable to say that he's the only person on the planet who's like that. 
And I think um, there are lots of opportunities for government to be able to develop new and effective and productive institutes of research and scholarship by harnessing not just the money, but the expertise and the passion and the commitment of people like Mike. And I was hoping that uh, that Perimeter Institute could serve as a broader model for all sorts of those sorts of uh, initiatives to happen. And, uh, and I, I was a little bit displeased that, uh, at, at least in my observation, that certainly wasn't recognized or capitalized on. So what is the state of the Perimeter Institute now? And what is, in your view, is its future? Well, uh, this may sound weaselly, but, uh, but I'm, not, um, I'm not the person that uh, can answer that question for two reasons. Uh, the, first, the first reason is that I don't actually have any idea uh, because I'm uh, not paying attention uh, to things. So I'm in no position to make any ju judgment whatsoever as to how successful or unsuccessful it's been. Uh, um, so there's that. Uh, and then there's the fact that even if I had been paying attention, uh, I'm clearly biased insofar as I'm uh, very personally motivated for the Institute to succeed and, uh, and succeed in the way that uh, I, I had uh, originally, I and others had originally envisioned. So, uh, so even if I did know what was going on, uh, I would not be the person to ask. So, uh, so that, that, that makes me uh, doubly inappropriate to, uh, to give an assessment of where, where it is. Uh, and the best thing to do, I think, is to talk to other people and get a sense from them as to um, not just how successful it is, but what we mean by success. Uh, I think that's important that when people say, oh, this is a great place, that's important that everybody thinks it's a great place. And if they think, oh, they're just a bunch of losers or they're flaky or they're out to lunch or they haven't done anything worthwhile or whatever. And if that's a consensus view, then that's obviously very significant and important to take seriously. But um, but it's important to push that a little bit more, I think. And even to people who say it's it's successful or unsuccessful to say, well, successful in what way? How? What What do you mean by that? And and uh and, and I think those are questions that we need to be constantly bearing in mind. Um, and, and I think that brings up another point that part of this, I guess, is just my disposition. But there is a natural tendency for people to want to be, I think, pounding their chest and saying that everything is wonderful and great and fantastic and believing their own press. And I think this is, uh, I was going to say dangerous, maybe that's too strong a word, but uh, it is certainly potentially unhelpful. Uh, I used to surprise a lot of people uh, when they would come into my office and they'd be visiting because, of course, people are coming uh, from all over the world all the time. Uh, and and you'd say, well, what do you think of the place? And they would start gushing about how wonderful it was and so forth, as if uh, that was what was expected of them. Uh, and 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 I, I would invariably cut them short and say, yeah, yeah okay, fine. I want to know what you think is wrong. I want to know what you think needs to be improved. I want to know uh, honestly what you think the greatest concerns are, um, because it's. I have a very strong belief that if you want to be going forwards, you have to be focused not not to be pessimistic or always focused on the negative, but you have to take advantage of the candid views, objective views of people who who are just telling you what they think because they really believe it particularly if they're uh, experts uh, that, are, that are there. 
um, and they have some very insightful things to say. And I think that's that's kind of an operational philosophy that that I have. And all too often, you reach a stage where you start believing your own press, and you start saying, uh, you know, you're 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 living in the world of whatever management consultants and PR people who are who are putting out all these great uh, announcements like. The Institute is the greatest institute in the world and is better than any other institute. And is, you know, as everyone clearly knows, it's groundbreaking here and it's phenomenal there. Um, and then you it's always an interesting thing to ask them, well, why? Why do you say that? Why do you think it's so wonderful? Uh, what is it exactly that makes it so wonderful? Um, and, and very often you reach a situation where people are saying that because of national pride or local pride or because they're associated with the place or because they, th- they think it's what you want to hear. And, and I think um, in order to, to really achieve your goals, you have to be consistently aware of what those goals actually are, because they may be different than what other people's goals are. And you have to be honest and objective, and you have to listen perhaps even more often uh, to, your, to, your, uh, to your detractors than to those who are willing to uh, tell you how wonderful you are. Yeah, that's quite a thoughtful answer. <laughs> So the building and uh, establishing the Institute is, of course, this amazing achievement. I mean, more than any of us will ever perhaps achieve. So do you see it as your scientific legacy? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I, I think it was a great opportunity and I'm, ex- I'm very well aware of how extremely fortunate I was to have had the opportunity. Uh, because it was extremely interesting. And I hope that by uh, playing a significant role in creating the Institute, I have contributed in some non-trivial way towards uh, my little corner of, uh, of research culture, not only through the establishment of the Institute itself, but maybe to influence other institutions, both in terms of uh, research avenues, research culture, outreach activities, what have you. So I'd like to think, as we all would in life, that what we've done has made a difference, whether it's made a difference as a parent, made a difference as a teacher. But, you know, I mean, we all, we're all on this planet for, for sadly a finite period of time, and we'd all like to think that we're um, significantly influencing uh, people uh, around us to the extent where we're we're leaving the world slightly better than we found it. So in that sense, in the same sense that everybody has, yes, uh, that's part of what I hope to, to have contributed um, during, my, during my life. Um, I don't see it as a scientific legacy, uh, both because it ain't scientific. Uh, I mean, I didn't do any science when I was, when I was there. Uh, I have other scientific interests that are outstanding, and I, I'm still working on a few, I hope to be able to develop some more. I've never been the world's greatest scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but I have my own scientific interests. And um, if by some chance the heavens would open and uh, it turns out that, that something that I'm pounding away at actually is of scientific value, which I uh, am very skeptical of, but if that were to happen, then that would be my scientific legacy, as it were. Uh, but that, of course, is also uh, incidentally not a reason to do science. You're doing science because you're actually captivated by stuff and you want to find things out, as Feynman famously said. So um, 
So that's an extremely long-winded way of saying, no, uh, it, it ain't my scientific legacy. But I do hope, uh, as we've all hoped in, in what it is that we've done, that it's made uh, a positive difference. Fair enough. But you did build a, quite a nice framework for other scientists to succeed. Well, I hope so. Uh, I hope so. And, and, uh, and I've received lots of uh, warm comments over the years from people who, I mean, obviously, uh, people whose careers we've significantly impacted by recruiting them to the Institute, and giving them tenure and all this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, people who are postdocs that came through, people who uh, participated as graduate students, uh, teachers who participated in some of our outreach programs, and I mean high school teachers, right, uh, or high school students. I mean, impact uh, can be uh, large and hopefully is large. And, um, and insofar as I played a seminal role to get that ball rolling, then uh, of course I'm proud of that. And I, and I hope that it continues as, as, long as, uh, as long as possible. So then after you moved on, you picked up another project, which is also quite big and ambitious, but I suppose it's a, a quite uh, in your character. So go big or go home. <laughs> so you started Ideas Roadshow. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, this really um, was prompted by actually experiences that I had at Perimeter. Uh, so I mentioned a little bit of the outreach activities. Um, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement with outreach as well, arguably just as much as there is uh, in, in the science. And I, I tried to do a lot of different things, and some of them succeeded and some of them failed. In particular, um, there was an experience I'll share with you. Uh, we started running these monthly lectures, uh, public lecture series. And again, this is, this is instructive in different ways because, first of all, it's, it, it's a good sign of how you can never win to try to convert people who are skeptical. So at first, when I said, okay, I want to do monthly public lectures in Waterloo um, and on, on science and related fields, particularly physics, but not exclusively physics, um, people said that you're crazy uh, in a town the size of Waterloo. You're never going to get more than 30 people coming to lectures if you hold them as frequently as monthly. And, you know, the vast majority of those 30 will be certifiably insane. And, and you know, you should just give up right now. Um, and that wasn't our experience, uh, not just the certifiably insane part, but uh, we were able to attract larger and larger uh, people coming to these lectures to the extent that um, that we were filling, uh, I don't know where they are now, but at the time, uh, maybe still, they were in a local high school that had a 600-seat uh, theater. And I think it was 600. It was at least 600. But anyway, we were filling that to capacity. Um, and the lectures were free, but you had to reserve a ticket in advance. And, and, and then once that had become a thing, um, people said to me, well, of course that's true because, you know, nobody has anything to do in Waterloo anyway. So of course they're going to go to your public lectures. So, uh, so if you want to be skeptical and, and you want to believe that, uh, uh, that things are obvious or, 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 uh, or can be done or can't be done, then you're not going to let the facts stop you one way or the other. Um, but one of the more instructive comments that I received and I received this quite often was I'd have people coming, giving these lectures 
And I remember people would come up to me after this, because of course I'd go to all of these things and you talk to people and you try to encourage a sense of uh, community pride, which is one of the really great things about Waterloo. Waterloo is a, is a community that's, uh, that, that's besotted with community pride. And that's something which is to their credit and, and can really be harnessed. Um, but at any rate, uh, I remember people coming up to me saying, that was wonderful after, after so many lectures. That was wonderful. I didn't understand a thing. And I thought, that's odd. That's not what I'm going for here. Uh, and that sort of thing happened all the time. People started going to these lectures and, and almost expecting not to understand it or not to understand very much. And it was almost as if that was a badge of pride, uh, that that would be the, uh, the circumstances. So I thought, well, you know, we should be able to do a little bit better than that. We should not only hold these lectures, but we should be able to do them in a way where we can do a better job of communicating the material. Um, and one of the things I started doing was I started having spontaneous conversations with people um, um, in, in various different ways to be able to get behind the scenes, as it were, of the lectures. So lectures are wonderful, and people can encounter them in all sorts of different ways by watching on YouTube or by going to a community event or by listening to a TED Talk or what have you. Um, but lectures, by definition, are polished uh, presentations about a specific point. And um, and they're important, and they they should you know, people should watch them. I'm certainly not advocating that they shouldn't, but that's only one side of the story. And what you often don't get in a lecture or any form of polished presentation is you don't get the ambiguity, you don't get what was really going on, you don't get the frustrations, the excitement, the the dreams, the anger, the what is the guy uh, who disagrees with you vehemently down the hall? What does he think, and why? Why is he upset about various different things? What do you what keeps you up at night? What are you really trying to achieve? Um, how significant do you think this is? What do you really want to be working on uh, going forwards? All these sorts of questions. And I came to appreciate that one of the best ways of getting that content out was through the conversational dialogue, through a conversational format. Um, and, and then I thought, well, there's all this wonderful technology now that people have, this portable, high-quality, high-definition technology um, not only cameras and high-level audio equipment and so forth, but also what we talked about a little bit earlier, the editing technology, all the software to be able to produce things of the highest possible quality. So you can now um, actually go to the people, um, the experts, the scholars, and, and try to, with a little bit of effort, try to get at the research culture and understand what motivates them and what excites them and... Uh, and what drives them in a way which is revealing to people. And it's it's funny when you're when you're um, the head of a of an academic institution, when you're an academic administrator, you spend for your sins a, a, a fair amount of time talking to other academic administrators. And you hear these things, comments like I heard very frequently, which is, gosh, you know, I run University X, and something that really frustrates me is we have all these wonderful. Uh, people at our university, we have the, this wonderful faculty, and they're all so knowledgeable, and they work on these fascinating things, and and nobody knows about them. And I can't get them to talk to the media, and um, and these people are all shrinking violets, and it's a huge problem for me to get them to communicate their research and scholarly ideas to the general public. And this always struck me as very odd, and I heard this on many occasions, because my experience was when you set people up in the right environment, in the right circumstances, the hardest thing is to get them to stop talking about their research and their ideas and their motivations. So I thought, that's odd. 
I was hearing this so often that I thought something must be wrong. And what I thought was wrong is that not that these people don't have the ability to communicate, not that they don't have the motivation to communicate to a general public. It's that they don't have the opportunity. They don't have the platform. If they've just won a big prize, they get somebody from the newspaper that comes to their door and asks them to condense their entire life's work in 15 seconds or less. Um, if they've written a book, they get a little flurry of interest about the book review. Um, they don't have the opportunity to really sit down and engage in a prolonged, relaxed, informal way with somebody who has, has no agenda other than to try to uncover what their work is, who's not going to be combative, but who wants to openly and honestly understand the research and the context in which the research uh, has been developed and the future orientation of their research. Not, not that dissimilar to what you're doing at New Books Network. You know, it's, it's that sort of approach. They don't have the opportunity for that very often. Um, and so, uh, so I thought, well, okay, technology is now such that you can do that. And so I, I thought, not only can I do that in physics, but you can do that in a wide variety of other fields, basically any field of research and scholarship, whether it's environmental science or whether it's history or, or whether it's philosophy uh, or, 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 or biology or linguistics or what have you. Um, so I started doing that, and I was very pleased that by and large, I mean, not just by and large, I would say overwhelmingly, uh, people were very receptive to this. Uh, and the vast majority of them I didn't know, uh, I, I'd never spoken to before. Uh, but after a, a couple of hours, because that's typically how long the conversations ran, there was, a, there was a real sense of connection. And some of these people have actually become friends of mine. And it's, it's a remarkable thing when you develop a friendship based upon uh, one conversation with somebody three years ago, and then you feel that you can contact them about, uh, about a wide variety of different things because there's a level of intimacy and connection that exists. And so, uh, so we bottled these things. So we started off being more interested in video. I came to appreciate the fact that, in fact, the best format, as I mentioned to you at the top, was actually in print, ironically enough, although we're, we've also done quite a bit in the way of audio and podcasts, and we've worked for airlines and in-flight entertainment and this sort of thing. So that's, I, that's another area that I think we're focused on. Um, but through those experiences, I came to appreciate that that's a great forum for to present these conversations, both in print and actually in audio. And on the video side, we built these databases for all sorts of uh, universities and high schools and all the rest of that. And I came to appreciate that one of the great advantages of video is actually to present a spectrum of views, right? You talk about anything, whether it's the, the theory of inflation or whether it's the uh, anthropic principle in physics, or whether it's uh, the diversity of languages, or, or, or whether it's different uh, philosophical approaches of free will, or what have you. Um, and, and by having all this footage with all these different people, with all these different perspectives, you put that together in really a compelling documentary-style view for people where they can see all these perspectives from all these experts. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they disagree, but you can tell a story there through that dynamic. And so that led me to believe that actually that's a great way of presenting ideas-driven content by having a, a wide variety of different expert perspectives around a common theme 
which led me to think, okay, well, I'd like to make a bunch of films based on that since we've produced over a thousand videos and I'm uh, quite confident that, uh, that I can do that now. So, uh, so through those experiences, you, you, you not only learn what you're most interested in and what's exciting to you, but you get a sense, something that's long been uh, a passion of mine about which forum, which media is best suited to expressing which sorts of ideas, which is, I think, itself intrinsically interesting. Yeah, for sure. So now people definitely are coming in knowing that they will understand what what you were talking about. Well, that's the goal. I uh, hope so. If, mm. if they haven't, then 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 I failed, quite simply. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you didn't. <laughs> so we've taken up a lot of your time. And what are you currently working on? And what will be your next project? Well, uh, a bunch of things. Uh, as I said, so we're continuing uh, Ideas Roadshow. We've just come out with... Uh, all of the previous content in book form. So that's 100 individual conversations in ebook form and 20 uh, print conversations, both in ebook and paperback, of five conversations each grouped around common themes. So we've just finished that. Uh, I am working uh, in the meantime, uh, and we're, we're looking at all sorts of future directions for Ideas Roadshow. Uh, and we will be starting that up again uh, in the fall. And in the meantime, as I mentioned to you, moving on with a bunch of film projects. So I'm working on a film, uh, two films now, actually, in pre-production. One is uh, a comprehensive film about uh, the, the coronavirus pandemic and what we've learned and how we can hopefully harness those lessons in the future. Um, certainly on the biological side, what have we learned uh, in terms of not just this virus, but viruses like this, uh, vaccine development, the immune system, the, many of these things I'm sure uh, are eminently transferable to all sorts of other areas of medical science and biological science, as well as communicating information, being prepared, uh, obviously issues about where this came from, how likely this is to reoccur, uh, uh, environmental issues about uh, different habitats encroaching on other habitats and so forth. So there are lots of different topics to explore, but in a in the same sort of motivation, which is to say dispassionate, objective, uh, nonpartisan. So obviously there are political aspects when you look at which countries have done well, which countries haven't done well, how, why, and so forth, but not in a hatchet job type of way or not because I'm pushing one party over another or one interest over another, but just to objectively assess what's gone right and what hasn't gone right um, in order to hopefully learn from that. So there's that. Um, there's another project on the incompleteness theorems uh, that I'd like to be starting shortly. Um, also with the idea of having it as a film. Um, and there are other films in the future. There's a major project that I would like to do on the Renaissance uh, that I'm thinking about will take uh, really a long time, like seven or eight years. I seem to do everything in eight-year increments. So, uh, so this is probably my next major eight-year increment that I'd like to be focused on. Um, and we could talk longer about why I find that particular um, period of history fascinating. Uh, I guess the short answer is the more I learn about it, the more I realize that uh, nobody really knows what the Renaissance actually is anyway, which, which, makes, uh, which makes, um, makes for very interesting intellectual explorations in and of itself. So lots of things to do, both in print and 
in, uh, in film uh, as well as audio. And I'm really excited about all the different ways of exploring ideas uh, using experts and the wonderful technology that we have now to harness their insights. Sounds super interesting and very important work, especially on the pandemic part. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the book? So um, I'm hesitating because we're, uh, as, as ever, it seems uh, changing things and streamlining them. Uh, so one, one place to go definitely is Ideas on Film. So if you go to ideas-on-film.com, you will find information uh, about First Principles and three other books that I've written, as well as there's a whole section about Ideas Roadshow and all of those conversations and all of the books and with whom and where to find them, as well as upcoming film projects. Um, uh, I will also, uh, I'm not sure if I should say this, but you can obviously edit it out. So uh, there will be a website uh, that will be repurposed called ideasroadshow.com for all Ideas Roadshow things, as well as howardburton.com for all things about me, if you just can't get enough of me. Um, but I'm not sure. I think they won't be developed until uh, till the end of June. So I'm not sure when this is going to be released. So there, that's something for something else for your editor to, uh, to filter out. No, no, I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a truly insightful conversation. Well, thank you very much, Galina. And I just wanted to say to you, because uh, we've had the, the good fortune of, at least I've had the good fortune of being able to talk to you a couple of times. Uh, I just want to applaud the work that you're doing, uh, both you specifically and on New Books Network. I think it's uh, it's a great vehicle and it's exactly the the same sort of thing that uh, that I'm trying to do. So uh, hopefully there'll be more and more people like ourselves moving into this space. For sure. Thank you very much. My pleasure.